Thank you, Lori. It's uh, great to be here today. Someone asked me up there, are you actually going to follow that? <laughs> I uh, didn't bring my little red helmet that I should have on, I guess. And if this doesn't go well, I'll start crying, though, and asking for mommy. And <clears throat> you'll know it's not working out for me. Mm, let's pray. Lord, you are our good, good father. And it's uh, such a great reminder this morning uh, to sing those words uh, to you. you know, we uh, acknowledge that that is who you are and that we are your children and that we belong to you. Thank you for that promise and for the reality that we're able to live. And Lord, for each of us uh, have had earthly dads, have had many different experiences uh, with our fathers, and whether rich and strong and with a tremendous model or one that has vacancy and hurt in it, Lord, we are so grateful that you are our heavenly Father and that you protect and you guide and you teach and you honor us as your children and you call us to yourself. So we thank you for those realities and we want to go deeper still into the love that you have for us and uh, teach us this morning from your word and from the example of Moses uh, and his people and the truths that you have for us there. In Christ's name, amen. Well, it's uh, an honor to be here this morning. So glad to be able, able to participate in your study of Deuteronomy. And as you know, uh, this is the last four chapters of Deuteronomy. So we're coming really to the conclusion uh, of the book. And uh, you, I think you should have structured notes that we'll be going through this morning. This is uh, the, the place in which uh, Moses concludes his speeches. Um, and here at these last chapters in Deuteronomy, he gives more exhortations and then warnings. Uh, he writes a song that he then presents to the people. He blesses each of the tribes. Uh, and he is given the privilege of seeing the land that he's not going to be able uh, to enter himself. And then it records uh, the death of Moses as well. So if you think all the way back to when you started the study, now at the conclusion, the people are poised, God's people are poised, ready to go into the land uh, with a new commissioned leader, uh, Joshua. Now one of the undercurrents in Deuteronomy is the people's stubborn rebellion, their faithlessness, their unbelief, um, really in contrast to God's faithfulness to his people. And this is really brought to the foreground in striking fashion in these three chapters because despite God's provision and his promises and the signs and the wonders that he has done for his people, Israel is going to forsake the Lord. And then in turn, God says that he is going to forsake them. So if you think of all the work you've gone in to study this and all the traveling you've done with these people, and this comes to the end of the story, and God, through Moses, says, and by the way, all these warnings and exhortations and all the things you've seen, uh, you are going to forsake God, and he's going to forsake you. So if this is a movie, and we've all been in the theater watching the movie, and we all file out together, we'll go, boy, that was a sad ending. I don't, I don't like sad endings like that. 
But the beautiful part of it is that this is a larger story, right? So this is not the end of the story. It's the end of the section of it of Deuteronomy, but it's not the end. So it really makes us think, once again, of Deuteronomy in the context of the sweep of Scripture. So you can see the first part on your notes there is Deuteronomy in the big story of the Bible. And it says, as you, as you conclude the study of Deuteronomy, do you, do you recall Drew Hunter's overview of the book and where it fits into the larger narrative of Scripture? So Drew gave, I think it was the second teaching uh, on Deuteronomy, and I went back and listened to that just to see, um, I guess, the whole book in context. And uh, he talked about, um, among other things, two particular things, the progression of the whole Bible and the, the story of creation, fall, redemption, and then restoration. And so this is really the story which all these other stories fit into. And this is the movement from paradise to the tension of something having gone terribly wrong and then it being restored to where it's in its right place again. So Within that plot line, God has a specific plan. And that plan is that God's people are in God's place, enjoying God's presence, reflecting God's rule. And that is, um, starts with Eden, right? God's people in God's place and God's presence, reflecting God's rule. Things go as they shouldn't go, and then it ends up on the new earth with God's people uh, in his presence again. Susie Everett taught on covenants last week, and she said that this progression that we're talking about really is essentially a covenant story, that God has one plan for humanity with multiple covenants, and they form the background to this meta-narrative. So you're familiar with these chapters, uh, 31 to 34, as you completed the lesson this week. And so what I like to do is just to move through these four chapters, and I have on your outline there just 10 points. Uh, that we'll, we'll just build, move through, uh, not spend a lot of time on any one of them. But it's, so it's pretty simple and direct, and we'll just move through those and then have um, some points for discussion after that. So the outline for Deuteronomy 31 to 34, um, Moses begins his final recorded speech by, first of all, saying that he will not enter the land. It says in, uh, this, actually, the second verse of 31 Moses went and spoke these words to all Israel, and he said to them, I am 120 years old today. I am no longer able to come out and go. And the Lord has said to me, you shall not cross this Jordan. So this just builds the drama, really, of the whole story for us as we are the listeners of it. Because here's the man who's drafted for a job that he didn't want, has to confront Pharaoh, such a powerful man who could snuff out his life, repeatedly confronts him. He leads these cantankerous people for decades through the wilderness, and then he's not allowed to complete his task. We're going to talk a little bit more about this later um, as, we move, as we move through the outline, the fact that Moses did not get to enter the land. Secondly, he says that God will cross the Jordan River ahead of the people. So the people are without Moses, but they are not alone. Verse 3 says, It is the Lord your God who will cross ahead of you. He will destroy these nations before you, and you shall dispossess them. So the Lord is the one who will deliver them and defeat the inhabitants. 
And so because of that, they're exhorted to not fear. Third point, people in Joshua are commanded to be strong and courageous. So this is the memory verse for this week, to be strong and courageous, to not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. And so three times in this 31st chapter, verse 6, verse 7, and 23, the people or Joshua are given this exhortation, be strong and courageous. And then in the next book, when Joshua does assume leadership, he's told that five times. So a huge emphasis on this idea of strength and courage uh, in the face of the enemies that are before them. So this word strong means to be or to grow firm. It comes from a word about to fasten upon, to seize or to grip, to cleave to something. It means to be powerful, hard, mighty, and forceful. Courageous is to be stout, bold, alert, brave, to be steadfastly minded. So it's really a mental discipline that expresses itself in action, right? <clears throat> so you can imagine you've been waiting a long time to go into this place, and it's this beautiful promised land of flowing with milk and honey, but there happen to be people already there who call it their home, and so you have to kick them out in order to take the land. And God will be with you, and he tells you he will be the one who will do this, but you are his instrument as well. You actually have to move in and do that. And so that, that would, could be, and it would be a fearful thing. The larger the danger, the more profound the opportunity for courage. The more troubling the threat, the greater opportunity for God to be glorified. So I, I just think about in our lives, uh, think about if, if you're facing something that is overwhelming to you, is there something that undermines your sense of security? Is there a person or a task or some uncertain outcome or future um, that really brings fear to your heart? So I think all of us can really appreciate and identify with this sense of something looming out there that I have to face. And what would it mean for you and for me in the midst of the turbulence to fasten upon, to seize the Lord with a powerful grip, and then be bold and alert in the situation? I think often when I'm fearful, I can shut down, freeze, like some of the children up here who just stood there. <laughs> it was so cute. In their minds, they're singing and they're moving their arms, but they're just standing there. <laughs> so th the same thing happens when we become afraid. We lock up, right? We withdraw. We pull inside of ourselves. Um, or we get real busy and distracted and, and, and think of other things. But to be alert and to be bold and to step into that situation or with that person of which you are afraid. Jesus said in John 10, my, voice hear, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. No one will snatch them out of my hand. 
My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So as you apply strength and courage, and you seize upon the Lord with a powerful grip, Jesus has you in his hand, and the Father has Jesus in his hand. And that is the source of your strength. That is how you're able to have courage in the situation, because it doesn't just depend on you or me to keep that grip, right? He has us doubly gripped, and that's how you move forward into that situation. That God literally is with you and is for you. Next, Moses tells us about the, the priests being commanded to read the law to Israel every seven years. Uh, Moses takes the law, he presents it to the Levites and to the elders. In other words, Moses is no longer going to be with them, so they will possess uh, the law. And then he institutes a solemn ceremony of covenant renewal that's supposed to happen every seven years. And so all of Israel is to hear the reading of the law during the year of release that happens every seven years. And this is done, it says twice, so that people will hear and learn to fear the Lord. Children are also mentioned in verse 13 in regards to this, that they are to hear the word in this big community-wide, civilization-wide, nationwide ceremony of renewing the covenant and this is the basis, basis of it, is the law that God has given to us through Moses. This is, we surround this word, this truth, and we live by it. And so children would once, or possibly twice in the course of their childhood, have this really significant experience with the community. And this is all done in order for them to learn to fear the Lord. And this term has come up earlier in the study of fearing God, and uh, it can be confusing because the English word fear for us uh, is imprecise and actually has lots of different meanings. Uh, a biblical fear of the Lord does not mean that we're frightened or that we're scared of God, so we shield ourselves or we withdraw from Him. A biblical fear conveys a positive reverence. It's an attitude of respect and wonder and willing, trusting submission. And that's very different than being scared of someone or something that you're going to run from or fight. It acknowledges God's good intentions and then makes me receptive to wisdom and knowledge because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So I realize that He has authority and goodness and I want that, and so I move toward him and then follow and submit myself to his ways. And it also includes a wholesome dread of displeasing the Lord. And in God's word, the law contributes to this healthy fear. And that's why this ceremony was instituted. Remember back in Deuteronomy 6, the parents are to teach the children when they, when they rise up and when they lie down and uh, when they're in their home and when they walk by the way. So there's a continual teaching of the law of God's word to children and within the family. And then every seventh day is a Sabbath, day of rest. Normal life is put on hold and families, the community gathers together to worship and to remember and to hear God's word. 
And then in this case, it's every seven years. There's this very special time in which it is all reviewed for the nation. When the, uh, the, meet, the leaders meet on Tuesday mornings, yesterday morning, and we discuss all of this, and someone said in that meeting, well, you've got the, the seven days and the seven years. I, I think I need every seven minutes. So I think somewhere in there is actually what we're supposed to be doing as well, right, is remembering these things in, in a continual way. Then Joshua is commissioned to lead the nation into the land. So we have this transition, this turning over of power. And it is a traumatic transition. It's a seismic shift to go from Moses' leadership to a new person. And so what happens is the replacement leader accompanies the seasoned one into the tent of meeting. So Moses and Joshua go into the tent of meeting. The, the pillar, the cloud, comes over the tent. And so the people know God is meeting with those two men. This transition is happening. And it's not just Moses' independent decision to pick his successor, that this God's endorsement is upon this. And they can trust Joshua the way they were supposed to trust, trust Moses. Moses was led by God. God spoke through Moses. God, God has now met with Joshua as well. The mantle is being handed off, and God will speak through Joshua. He's not acting just on his own. You can trust this new leader. <clears throat> and then Moses explains, number six, that after Moses dies, the nation will forsake God, so he will forsake them. This is verse 16 and 18 through 18 in chapter 31. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you're about to lie down with your fathers, and this people will arise and play the harlot with the strange gods of the land into the midst of which they are going and will forsake me and break my covenant, which I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they shall be consumed, and many evils and troubles shall come upon them. So that they will say in that day, Is it not because our God is not among us that these evils have come upon us? But I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil which they will do, for they will turn to other gods. So this is the tragic news, right? That they actually will not learn to fear the Lord. And Moses is given an assignment to write and to teach them a song. And this song is to be learned as a testimony against the Israelites. So we read on in verse 19, Now therefore, write this song for yourselves and teach it to the sons of Israel. Put it on their lips in order that this song may be a witness for me against the sons of Israel. And that is astounding. The Israelites are to learn this song and have it in their minds and their hearts so in the future one day, when they turn and break the covenant, they will remember the song and they'll realize that God is just when he forsakes them, that he has warned them, that he has given them an understanding of what is true and right, and they know this song and it's a testimony against themselves. It's interesting how uh, God reveals some things and then other things he does not reveal. So that just struck me, the, one of the things that struck me the most out of these chapters 
was this kind of prediction, right? That's not a prediction, it's a prophecy. It's going to happen. And telling a group of people, by the way, you're going to fall away. So it's interesting how God tells us some things about ourselves and about the future, and then other things he doesn't, he doesn't do that. And as, as parents, I mean, as moms, those of you who are moms, you do that same kind of thing as well with your kids, right? I mean, some things you tell your kids that, that what's coming, and other things you just let them unfold. So you can think about taking a long vacation, a week's-long vacation that has a long van ride in it. I mean, there's certain things you tell them that's coming, and others you just, you just let happen. Uh, maybe a cavity, right? The child's first cavity, you explain certain things. But the needle that's about that long is going to be stuck into your gum. Well, we'll just, we'll see what happens there. Look away or something. Uh, marriage, right? If you have a child who's been married, there's things that you explain or try to make a path for them in marriage. But there's other things that you realize you just cannot explain and tell to a person. You, you're going to let them learn those and maybe come to you in the midst of uh, of them experiencing those things. And this is what God does with us. He doesn't tell us everything that's going to happen, and for good reason. So um, just think about what has God revealed to you about your future. Because he told these folks, right, in the wilderness as they go into the land, let me tell you something about what's going to happen. What has God told you? And what do you know about your future from the Lord? Well, if you're a believer, you know that you will be persecuted and misunderstood as a follower of Christ. But in the midst of that, nothing can separate you from the love of God. And the Holy Spirit indwells you to give you guidance and power with what you have to do. You know that you have an opportunity to contribute to the church through spiritual gifts that you've been given. You know that you're a messenger, that you're an ambassador, and you take this message of the gospel to the world. You know that a big tribulation is coming. At some point on this earth, there's a horrible tribulation coming. You know that Jesus Christ will return. You know that you'll be rewarded for your faithfulness. And you know that you'll spend eternity in a new earth in the presence of God. So a good reflection is, what am I doing with the things that I know is coming? And which ones do I focus on? And which ones do I tend to forget about? And do I sometimes go to too many questions about certain things that I wonder about? Versus assurance of, of what I do know and acting upon those assurances and those promises. So some things he tells us and some things he doesn't. And really receive those things that he does tell you. Because I, I was thinking of putting myself in the place of the people hearing this from Moses. And one of those um, Israelites who would be faithful could have said, all right, this nation is going to turn away and be, and be forsaken, but I will not be. I will be faithful. I will follow the law because I do love the Lord and I know that I can do that. Then Moses uh, blesses the tribes. He gives a, a blessing to each of the, the tribes after the, the sons of Jacob. This is what Jacob had done in Genesis 49 when uh, Joseph was there and then his family comes um, to Egypt 
And then Jacob, before he dies, gives a blessing to, to his sons. This is a repeat of that. It's not to the, to the sons, but to the, the descendants, the tribes uh, of the sons. And um, that's a very interesting process there, right? I mean, as you read through that, and some have long blessings. Some seem like they're not really blessings. <laughs> like, I, I, that doesn't sound, that's not happy. Um, and then it's, it's just really interesting um, again, what, what, what do those people do with that kind of blessing? Uh, it's, it's very interesting. And then number nine, Moses is allowed to see but not enter the promised land. Moses was not allowed to enter, and that's a part of the story that sticks out most often to people as they, as they know this story. And they wonder if it seems fair. <laughs> After all that Moses put up with, and really just because of one incident, God bans him from being able to, com- to complete really what, what he would want to do. And uh, in Numbers 20 is when this incident happened. Um, and so the people are uh, without water, which again, is, is not a small thing. <laughs> you're in the desert, there is no water, uh, you're dying of thirst. I don't know if you've ever been thirsty before. And you've got thousands and thousands and thousands of people and no water and we're, and we're brought out here, wandering around, what on earth? So the people assemble, it says they assemble against Aaron and Moses. So you can imagine, and Miriam had just died actually. So here they are, grieving, thousands of people, rioting, upset, yelling. I don't know what they're doing, but it's a, it's a big problem. Uh, Moses and Aaron go into the tent of meeting, and they bow down to the, to the ground before God. And God says he will... Uh, bring water for them out of the rock. And so in, in that kind of a situation, Moses now comes out of the tent of meeting and comes before the people. Um, and Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock, and he said to them, listen now, you rebels, shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came forth abundantly, and the congregation and their beasts drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. And then this is further explained in Deuteronomy 32, 51, referring back to that from Numbers 20. He said, because Moses, because you broke faith with me in the midst of the sons of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin, because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the sons of Israel, you shall see the land at a distance, but you shall not go there. So the exact nature of this offense is hard for us to discern. I mean, we know the account of the story. We know that he broke faith. He did not treat the Lord as holy. But what exactly was it? We're, we're not sure. Different explanations have been that Moses struck the rock twice, showing anger. Another one is that he makes an arrogant claim. He says, shall we bring forth water out of this rock for you? Well, that, no, no. God brings the water out, and Moses is the instrument. And then also just speaking rashly, right, and harshly. And God said to him, speak, and the water comes out of the rock. He hits it with the rod. So there's, 
rashness, there's anger, there's arrogance, the frustration, whatever all that is, between him and the Lord, it was enough for God to say, okay, there's a consequence for you taking my authority, taking my holiness uh, before the people. So even with uh, this consequence, God is gracious to Moses. He allows him to see the land, takes him up to a high place, and he's able to see where the people um, will be entering. And would you have wanted to see the land if, if you had been in his situation after that many years and waiting and wanting your people to be there? I think most of us would have really appreciated that, right? Uh, in yesterday's leaders meeting, Susie Everett uh, shared a story with us uh, about this situation. Uh, her father, as many of you know, uh, passed away last year, and this necessitated her family selling uh, the cattle. And so her dad was very involved and invested a lot in the herd of cattle f uh, for many, many years and was known in the community and the family for this, and it was a big part of his life. And so, um, and this is in around Terre Haute area, Susie was there after her father died, and they sold the uh, the cattle and they were put on to trucks and they were driven off and she was there that day and it was just so powerful and symbolic of the end of his life the cattle on there and the trucks pull away and there they go really into the unknown and then they received in the mail uh, several days later a photo from Texas and it was, it, was the, it was their cattle grazing in the land in Texas. And her mom framed that and has that framed photo. And it's that same sense of they've crossed over to their land and they're grazing in a beautiful place where they should be. And that's the same kind of picture for Moses, right? I don't get to go in, but I want to see where my people will be, and now I have closure. They will be okay there. And you almost get that sense. He's 120 years old. Now, now I can die, even if I, even if I can't go in. And so the, the 10th point is uh, we have the death of Moses. So he passes uh, from this life, and then the people mourn uh, for a month uh, at his passing. So these 10 points really point us back again to where we started this morning, to uh, the larger story. And... I love narrative, right? The, the, all the, the, the drama and the people that are involved in it and what it would have been like to have been there and put ourselves in that place. And I love thinking about those things and studying them. The most important part of these chapters is this bigger part of the story, right? Where it fits in. And so um, we have the point that humanity is corrupted, but something new is coming. Moses' speech in Deuteronomy emphasize that for God's people, divine blessings will follow faithfulness, and curses are the consequence for disobedience. Yet the Israelites will not heed these clear promises and warnings. They are told that after Moses' death, they will break their covenant and despise the true God. Thus God declares that he will forsake them. So what hope do God's people have, knowing that their past and their future are both ones of corruption and stubbornness and rebellion. 
At that point, where does their hope lie? And for us as well, where does our hope lie? And from last week's study in Deuteronomy 30, verses 6 to 8, we get this, this uh, really startling promise of what is, gonna, what is going to happen. Chapter 30, verses 6 to 8. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul in order that you may live. And the Lord your God will inflict all these curses on your enemies and on those who hate you and who persecuted you. And you shall again obey the Lord and observe all his commandments, which I command you today. So the Lord is going to initiate a new covenant. Ezekiel 36, these prophets who were future to Moses at the time, pick up on this promise of people's hearts being circumcised, of hearts that want to follow the Lord. And Ezekiel says in chapter 36, that God will give his people a new heart, a new spirit. He will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and cause you to walk in my statutes. Jeremiah 32, I will make them an everlasting covenant. I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn away from me. So we live on the other side of what Ezekiel and Jeremiah were prophesying. So we live in this new covenant in which we have been given those new hearts. We have this fear and we have this capacity. And we have these lessons of centuries of people without Jesus, without the Holy Spirit, without this new heart, where that leads to. And yet we have these beautiful promises and these capacities that God has been so gracious to give to us. Of course, at the Lord's table in communion, in talking about this covenant, Jesus says he holds up the cup, right? He says, this is the new covenant in my blood. So Jesus is the one who fulfills the law that the people continued to fail at. He's the one who held fast to the Father. He does what we would fail to do, what we do fail to do, what they were unable to fulfill. And then he takes upon himself their curses so we can have God's blessings. So Deuteronomy concludes with the tragic news of coming unbelief and rebellion but it points us to this coming redemption and to ultimate restoration. So the pervasiveness of our corruption is devastating, but the Lord's graciousness prevails. And as Moses says, the eternal God is your dwelling place and underneath are the everlasting arms. At the end of... Uh, Deuteronomy, there's some unresolved questions for the Israelites. I'll uh, pass over that for the sake of time, but you can read those sometime when you'd like to. I think the last thing is, uh, is considering Moses, the, the man in his character. And so he's this towering figure in Deuteronomy and actually in, in, uh, in the Scripture. And as I've thought about this, he, he's one of the most outstanding people in the history of the world. I mean, if you think about all the great men and women who have lived and what he was able to accomplish and what he established, um, he's one of the greatest people who, who have ever lived. Um, so I just 
went to scripture for descriptions of this man, right? And so you have listed there Deuteronomy 34 at the end of, of this section. And then Acts 7, Stephen um, gives a sermon right before that he is stoned and he describes Moses. And then Hebrews 11, he's also described by these different qualities. So that's something uh, for you to continue to think about and you can even think about uh, in your group discussions this morning. Who was this man? Um, and what from his life would be good for us to emulate? Then the last thing um, for this morning uh, is a legacy question uh, for each of us to consider about our own legacies. So I, I had a legacy question asked of me this past week. I was in a study group in which we were studying wounds that we have experienced in our life that opened the way for lies to enter into our life about God or ourself. So I'm hurt in a certain way, and then Satan uses that opportunity to insert a falsehood about me or about God or about life, and then I live according to that thing that isn't true. So we were talking about that, trying to, to live truth. So I'm living something that actually, that's what I believe about myself, but it isn't true. Let's live according to truth. And in the midst of all that, we're talking about upbringing and fathers. And I was talking about father and my father and uh, being his son. And someone turned to me and said, well, you have two sons. What would you like your sons to say about you? And that really grabbed me, right? That's a legacy question. What is the legacy uh, that I am trying to have? Moses had a tremendous legacy. And so the question, the legacy question, I mean, that comes out of this for all of us is how would you like to be remembered? If someone, Acts 7, Hebrews 11, Deuteronomy 34, if someone wrote a short description of your life, if God described you for other people, what would be in that description? And I know in your study this week, you were to write a description of Moses, right, or an epitaph for him. So a eulogy is a long rambling, like I'm doing here, a long rambling about someone's life. A epitaph is a sentence or just a few statements. So that's valuable to do, is to think about what are you leaving behind? What are you trying to do that's most important out of your life? Deuteronomy 34, 32, 47, to conclude, says... Take to your heart all the words which I am warning you today, which you shall command to your sons to observe carefully, even all the words of this law. For it is not an idle word for you. Indeed, it is your life. So these words are indeed our life. And we serve a gracious God. Remember, Chapter 30, verse 6, the Lord your God will circumcise the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul in order that you may live. And God in his kindness has given us the capacity to be those kinds of people. So the exhortation is, let's live because we have the ability to do that through the spirit and through the word and through the body of Christ and through what Jesus has done for us to be strong and to be courageous and to be loving and to be obedient. Lord, we thank you that you have done for us what we could never have done ourselves. We could never even do this for the people whom we 
love and serve and care so much about their lives and their futures, we could not turn them into different kinds of people. And we can't do that for ourselves. Lord, thank you for Moses, for his example. And we even thank you for these people who struggled to be faithful in the same ways that we do. And Lord, may these lessons be for our good. And Lord, again, we thank you that you are our good, good Father, that we do not have to be frightened of you or turn away from you, that we know that forgiveness awaits us through your Son, Jesus Christ. And I pray this morning for these women as they gather in groups and share friendship around your word, uh, that you'll give them insight and that there'll be true encouragements to each other. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Thank you.